0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 17th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Jeremiah is thrown into the stocks for his faithful preaching, and he responds with a sorrowful lament, prayed in faith to the Lord his God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. What do we need to know about Jeremiah, his ministry, and the book, the part that we're in going into today's text?
1: Well, as I know many of your guests have talked about in recent days and weeks, uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, a prophet who is bringing a message of the impending judgment that God is going to have upon his people. Uh, due to their sins, and the prime sin, of course, of God's people in the Old Testament is idolatry. Uh, Today, as we pick up in chapter 20, uh, we're going to be speaking primarily about Jeremiah's message to the southern kingdom of Judah, as he speaks to the Judahites about um, an impending uh, overthrow from the Babylonians. That's been a theme that's been repeating itself in the preceding chapters And we'll specifically be seeing today the reaction that the preaching that Jeremiah had brought previously is going to bring from the officials of the people. And we're going to see Jeremiah end up being physically assaulted and persecuted on behalf of the message that he brought. Um, We see today is really a climactic point for the Judahite religious establishment's reaction against Jeremiah. And for Jeremiah, it's a low point in his ministry We get a lot of um, emotion, a lot of pathos coming out of Jeremiah as um, we'll see him lamenting to the Lord about the situation that he's been placed in by having uh, God's word upon his lips. And we see our text today in two main sections. We'll have a section of narrative about the um, persecution that Jeremiah himself faced and then something that almost looks as if it's a psalm that's laid out in a poetic form as Jeremiah brings his prayer before the Lord uh, and really bears his soul
0: before the Lord uh, in a time of, of great trouble. So two main sections, and we'll take them in that order. The first section of our text today is verses one to six here in chapter 20. Now, Pashur the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Peshur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. That's the first part of our text, the narrative section, in which Jeremiah is beaten and put into the stocks. Pastor Hill, this text happens right on the heels of chapter 19, which is not always the case in Jeremiah, where one chapter follows the next, but here we do. The beginning of 19, Jeremiah was told by the Lord to go buy this earthenware flask and to take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. It's quite possible that Peshur was there listening to Jeremiah's preaching, the whole thing with breaking that flask. What do we know about this character, Peshur the priest?
1: Yeah. So uh, Pashur, it says, is um, the son of the chief officer in the house of the Lord. So um, as a priest of the Lord, he's got duties in the Lord's house. There's a rank system uh, to who has the most clout and the most authority there. And uh, their job is, of course, to ensure that uh, the things taking place in the, the temple are, are taking place according to regulation, so to speak. And we know, of course, uh, from from the New Testament, that oftentimes the regulations and ways of man would take place uh, over and against um, the way that God had prescribed for things to be done. And we see this, especially with Pashur, who should have recognized uh, Jeremiah as a true prophet of the Lord, should have heard his message as a call to repentance and, and himself repented, but instead he reacts violently. We don't want to get too confused, though, in Jeremiah about Pashur, because there are actually two different Pashurs. Um, I guess it was a common name. Um, It's like Mary in the New Testament. Maybe we could bring it back, right? Pashur, (laughs) that's got a ring to it. Um, And, you know, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would be just as sweet, uh, Shakespeare said, right? Um, I looked it up a little bit. What does the name Pashur mean? If it's common, it's got to mean something. And there are two theories behind it. The first is that it might have actually come out of Egyptian. Mm. And if it comes out of an uh, Egyptian origin, the name Pashur would mean a portion of the god Horus. Now, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it, yeah. that you could potentially have a guy named after a foreign deity serving as one of the priests in the Lord's house, um, which would certainly say something about the idolatry going on amongst God's people and the way that they were mixing false gods with with the Lord. Um, but there's also the other possibility that its name, his name in Hebrew would be derived as meaning something like deliverance is roundabout or deliverance surrounds us. And um, that's probably the more likely case here. So Peshur is a man who is secure in his role as a priest. Um, His name, if we're taking that Hebrew name, Uh, literally would mean that he's essentially surrounded himself with the deliverance of God, this kind of false sense of security that says, uh, because we have the temple, because we have Jerusalem, nothing bad will befall us. Um, And it gives him a certain amount of boldness to react um, violently against Jeremiah, um, who was speaking for the
0: Lord. Hmm. You mentioned his reaction to Jeremiah's preaching. And, and the fact that the text in the ESV says he's the chief officer in the house of the Lord, one of the commentaries I consulted said that the word used there for chief officer is actually the same word that's used in Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah 1 verse 10, where the Lord tells Jeremiah, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms. You have the similar Hebrew word oh, there, yeah. mm-hmm. which I think is is telling that this this priest, Bashur, thinks he's in charge and is going to act like it when, in fact, we know from the beginning of Jeremiah, and as we will see from what Jeremiah preaches to Bashur, in fact, it is the word of the Lord coming through the mouth of his prophet that that's really what is in charge. But again, Bashur thinks he's the guy who's in charge. He thinks he has the right to tell Jeremiah off and to go even farther than that. So what what does Bashur do to Jeremiah and what's the significance?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a neat idea that you mentioned, by the way, too many cooks in the kitchen, according sure. to uh, Pashur here. So um, he's got to establish himself as uh, the one in charge. And of course, there's a difference between power and authority, right? Uh, authority is something that's recognized. Power is something that is is given by position and, and not by one's own bearing. So he reverts to a power play here and, and he takes the power that he has to um, seize Jeremiah, first of all, to arrest him, um, then to beat him, then to place him in the stocks and in, in a public place that would humiliate him. And remember the stocks, I mean, everybody's seen something from some medieval Renaissance fair, right? You put your head in, your your wrists in, but the point of them is not so much that you're just stuck there. You're stooped over and bent over in a place uh, of, of physical pain and also humiliation. And He's done, this is done to him in a public place in order that it would serve as a warning to the people not to follow Jeremiah and his teachings and also not to get any ideas themselves about challenging the religious establishment of the day. Now, We don't know why this happened, but Peshur releases him after one day. Some people think that maybe it's because he had a a second thought or a change of heart or was troubled in some way. Maybe it was just what was regarded as the standard punishment for this type of thing. But Jeremiah endures these things that are violent and horrible towards him, but he endures them for just one day and then he is, is released.
0: So, yeah, that, that is a bit striking, but I think it makes sense to just understand that was typical punishment. Bashur treats Jeremiah just like anyone he he would treat anybody in this situation. Now, uh, we should we can draw some similarities here between Jeremiah and our own Lord's experience in suffering as well. Right. And, and those similarities,
1: I don't know if I'd say they're obvious, but they're fairly surface level as we look at them, right? So, the connection between Jeremiah and Jesus as we compare them in this instance, at least, is... Uh, in both cases, uh, we have the the preaching of Jeremiah and Jesus that causes a harsh harsh reaction from the people. Uh, the harsh reaction that uh, Jeremiah gets is from the temple authorities. Jesus, of course, has a harsh reaction from the Jewish temple authorities, and thereby then they carry that on to the Romans who uh, react harshly against him. Uh, Jeremiah is beaten, and uh, that's that's no small thing. and Jesus then is, Beaten, mocked, and scourged at his time of persecution. Jeremiah is placed in the stocks. Jesus is placed upon the cross. Um, Jeremiah, though, is released after one day, and Jesus, uh, of course, is not released from the cross but taken down lifeless from it. But nevertheless, he's resurrected on the third day. So there is an end and a deliverance in sight. So uh, the similarities are certainly there. Now, I could hear my own internal dialogue saying, man, Pastor, that's a stretch. You know, you're trying to find some connections that, that may not be quite so clear. And here's a couple things from the New Testament, though, that would evidence this fact that there is a close connection between Jeremiah and Jesus. The first thing is that Jesus in Matthew 16 asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is right before Peter makes his good confession. And the response they have to Jesus first when he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They say, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the fact that Jeremiah's specific name is listed here uh, is important to see that the connection would have been made in the minds of Jesus' original hearers. Um, and later on, of course, Jesus comments on the suffering and persecution that the prophets endured And Jeremiah in this chapter would be a prime example of that. in Matthew 5, as he speaks the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then finally, in Matthew 23, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but he calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So the connections are really not a stretch between Jeremiah and Jesus, but are meant to be seen and were seen in Jesus' own day.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to report that Dr. Lessing made the same connection. So you're you're standing on good ground there, Pastor Hill. When He's he, the one who told me. There you go. So, I mean, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's. I think that's a fantastic uh notice here in in this chapter and even you know the lament that Jesus gives over Jerusalem certainly that fits with Jeremiah's own laments for his people for his situation and i think I think it's in Luke when, when you get the lamenta over Jerusalem where Jesus even laments that, you know, he, he wishes that they had seen what would have provided for their peace, which has been a big mm. thing in Jeremiah too, that, that the prophets are proclaiming peace, peace when there really isn't. Jesus too is concerned with that true peace that comes from God. So we see these similarities between Jeremiah's experience and then how our Lord fulfills what Jeremiah goes through in the New Testament. Now, so back to Jeremiah chapter 20, Upon the release from the stocks, Jeremiah, this uh, this brought to mind what the apostles often do in the book of Acts, they get thrown in prison for preaching the name of Jesus, they get released from prison, and then they go right on preaching the name of Jesus. Jeremiah has been thrown in prison for preaching destruction upon Jerusalem. And he gets put in prison in the stocks for it and he gets released. And what does he do? He keeps preaching more destruction, this time very particularly to Peshur. And here as the preaching begins, it seems like the name Peshur, and then this new name that God is going to give to him, that becomes pretty important. Right. So, um, Jeremiah is released from the stocks and immediately
1: pronounces judgment upon Peshur. Um, we know that this is God's judgment, not Jeremiah just being angry. Um, and he begins with a play on words. Jeremiah assigns a new name to Peshur, and the new name in English is terror on every side. Now, that, that's a mouthful, right? Um, <laughs> but the new name that he's given, this new nickname, is something that makes sense, actually, if we think of the original Hebrew meaning of Peshur, right? Right. The the meaning of Peshur was, and let me find my notes again, Uh, so I say it the right way, deliverance is roundabout, right? Deliverance is around him, and now instead, no terror is the thing Mm -hmm. that will be around you on every side. Um, This new name is then meant to be a sign of the future that awaits him and the future of all of the rest of the inhabitants of Judah. Peshur is going to be a terror to his friends that surround him, because specifically we find out that Jeremiah foretells that his friends will be killed first while he's forced to watch it take place. This reminds me of Zedekiah and what yeah. what happens to him with his sons. Um, he's going to be spared a while. He's going to be carried off into Babylon as the Babylonians plunder and pillage Judah, take all of the goods, um, and Peshur will go to reside in Babylon fully knowing that the, the temple in Jerusalem in which he put his hope rather than in God is, is laid to waste. And then Peshur will die in Babylon and be buried there far away from the place that he had made his home. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there's a, a great sense of finality that comes there in verse 6 where Jeremiah says, you know, to Babylon you shall go, there you shall die, there you shall be buried, you and all your friends. It's I mean, it's just a, a complete... A complete package there. it's There's just no hope for Peshur. Now the reason, and this is important because this will continue to be a theme, particularly as we move on into Jeremiah past some talk about the kings, this matter of falsely prophesying. That's the problem with Peshur. He says, or Jeremiah says to him, all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. So apparently Peshur as a priest was also engaging in some preaching as well. Right, which, which isn't generally the role of a priest in the first place. So he seems to have been taking the
1: prophetic mantle when it had not been given to him. He's the religious guy, so he's going to go out there and do religious stuff. Um, but it's a great danger for someone to, to take that responsibility upon themselves or that, that role upon themselves if it's not been given by God. Um, he, we can assume, was like the what we call the court prophets in Jeremiah or in the Old Testament. These people who essentially knew that their bread was buttered by um, saying things to those in power that the people in power wanted to hear. So when Jeremiah comes and he prophesies doom and destruction, a man like Pashur a number of others that we'll hear about would come in and say, no, don't listen to him. That's, that's a matter of opinion. He's off his rocker. Um, peace for Jerusalem is what lies ahead. And of course, everyone wants to hear the message they want to hear, and it prospers a false prophet like that. So they put a thin veneer of of religion on top of whatever the desires of the heart are of those who are powerful. Um, They were the religious yes-men of that day. And I think pastors in particular, we need to take heed to passages like this, because it is a constant um, battle to be sure that the word we are speaking is indeed the word of the Lord, Uh, when we claim it to be, you know, I mean, even Paul himself will, will stop in the middle of, of his epistles and stop and say, and now I say this, not the Lord, but I, and then he'll return back and say, now thus says the Lord, not I, but the Lord. And, and he's very careful even himself to speak in that way. We need to be careful too, uh, as, as pastors to make sure we're never speaking our own opinions or what we think others want to hear rather than, than the pure word of God.
0: Right. It always has to be the pure word of God that we preach. And this is a, a fight that Jeremiah has throughout his ministry is proclaiming a truth that people don't want to hear. And you're exactly right that this is what pastors are called to do. This is what the Christian church as a, a whole is called to do. It's not just pastors, but the whole church is called to stand firm in the truth and, in a world that that doesn't want to hear it, and that's I think that's true on, on both sides in terms of both law and gospel. That certainly Jeremiah he's preaching this death and destruction to Jerusalem and Judah. Of course, no one wants to hear that. But we also know that the gospel too is a stumbling block. How much how much would we love to preach to people? Just you can do it. You know you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make yourself better. People like that too. But the church still is called to be true to God's word in its in the full counsel of the word of God, law and gospel both. Absolutely, and 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 I agree
1: a hundred percent with those comments. But it's also very very interesting to think of how that is playing out in the realm of the law here with Jeremiah specifically, because the message that someone like Peshur is saying is there's no problem here. Yeah, you know Jeremiah is telling you you got to be worried about all of this stuff. Come on, there's no problem here at all, and and the connections we could make to, to this world are, are numerous and easily to come easy to come by. So we don't need to belabor
0: them. Make a few, make a few, make a few.
1: Oh gosh. Well, uh, any of the hot button contentious issues of the day, um, are, are things that would come to mind. And I, I guess we could even talk about marriage probably to begin with. Um, it's very common. You probably come across this as well, where uh, even men and women as adults are making uh, decisions very commonly that, that don't uphold, you know, the sanctity of marriage. You know, excuses get made about why I really can't get married right now, even though I'm going to live as if I could be. Um, and nobody really makes much hay over it. In fact, honestly, maybe we don't make as much hay over it as, as we ought to um, and and are a bit silent when we should say more. Um, so marriage is, of course, one of those areas. Um, any anything that's in the realm of of right and wrong and morality, um, when it hits us or someone we love square between the eyes, uh, we're very tempted to say there's nothing wrong here. Um, and instead, we have to check ourselves against God's word and and apply God's word even-handedly, uh, even when it hurts. And that's uh, one of the messages and. Lessons we can take away from Jeremiah for sure.
0: Certainly. Yeah, that temptation to just say there's nothing wrong here, everything is fine that's so easy just to ignore the problem, to push it down the road, to either let someone else deal with it or think that I never will have to deal with it. And it is God's law that does come and say, no, this is a problem and you need to deal with it. And and in ways, you know, as you you bring up marriage in ways that are are true, certainly theologically and, and in ways that damage our relationship with God, but also in ways that simply put, just hurt us period. When, when we mess with God's gift of marriage and we don't use it according to the way that he's given, not only does that harm our relationship with him, but it does in fact bring harm, physical harm, spiritual, I mean, secular type of harm upon ourselves and on this world. And, and when our pastors hopefully speak that word of warning, they're doing so out of love so that we don't experience that kind of harm.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important for the listeners to understand too, that it's not just the vocation of the pastor to speak that word of warning. Yes. Um, a lot of times people don't want to hear from us um, because they can easily replace us with Peshure, right? You know, they don't like what, you know, Pastor A in one town has to say. They'll just go to Pastor B and uh, they'll work their way down Main Street until they find someone that tells them what they want. Uh, the vocation, uh, especially within a family of, of a family member to speak to those they love about issues like this or anything that's it's an issue where you know someone you love is on the wrong side of God's word in some way. The answer isn't. I'm going to sit around and wait for pastor to tell them. Um, the pastor is going to going to do everything he can and work with you, together with you, to to lovingly, you know, confront your loved one about some kind of manifest sin. But uh, it would be utter foolishness for for the family members themselves to ignore it. Um, assuming that at some point pastor will come along and and set them straight.
0: Sure. And I mean, I'm sure you can testify to this as well, that so often it is the role of a faithful family member who makes the difference, who speaks that word that maybe they they hear it from the pastor and uh, he just has to say that to me. But then when the faithful family member comes along and does so clearly out of love, I, sure, that's a scary thing to do. I, I know it's a scary thing to do, but it is what God has called us to do. It is the truly loving thing to do, to be Jeremiah instead of to, to be peshur and to speak that word. That is very well put, that this is not just for the pastor, but it is for every Christian. Absolutely. Let's go ahead then. And with, with that, I think that provides a nice transition into what comes next, because Jeremiah proceeds in the rest of this text into a, a rather lengthy lament. And we see these throughout Jeremiah. And given the, the challenge that it is to speak God's word faithfully to a world that does not want to hear it, and a world that often reacts violently against it, you can see where this lament from Jeremiah comes from. Any, any comments on the lament as a whole before we look at the text itself?
1: Well, I guess what I would say is, the world has caused Jeremiah to be bowed down. He's been bent over and bowed down in the stocks, um, humiliated, brought low. And now, what we see is is Jeremiah is going to humble himself and and bring himself in prayer to God, bowing down to him him in prayer and lament. And it's not going to be pretty. Hmm. And I think us learning to embrace um, lament in the Old Testament. Uh, particularly in the way that it's it's on display for us in certain places, is a really helpful thing for Christians to do, to understand that uh, when you bring your prayers to the Lord, you can do so, and there's a biblical model for doing so, in a way that's really not very polite, um, in a way that says everything that you feel you need to say. Uh, and God doesn't rebuke Jeremiah here for what we're going to hear him say. So what he's going to say is going to strain the bounds of what we would consider to be pious conversation with God. Yet the Lord hears it. uh, The Lord receives it. um, The Lord responds to it. and, And that can be something helpful to you as well.
0: And, and I would say the Lord gives it to us still today as something for us to make use of when we find ourselves in the shoes of, of Jeremiah. So we're going to pick that lament of Jeremiah up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 20 with Pastor Nate Hill. Take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 17th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were talking about the first part of this text in which Jeremiah is completely mistreated, abused, persecuted by Pashur, the priest. He's let out of the stocks to preach judgment against Pashur, and then he launches into a lament, which is the rest of the chapter, and I'm going to go ahead and read that for us now. This is Jeremiah 20, beginning at verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision, all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's the rest of the text. That was Jeremiah 20, verses 7 to 18. Pastor Hill, it seems that this text breaks down pretty nicely into three distinct sections. Uh, opening, lament, a section in the middle that expresses quite a bit of hope, and then another very classic lament. It's certainly it all goes together, but I think it, it falls into those sections. And as you said, it, it begins to border on what we would consider impious. And yet the Lord does not reject Jeremiah. Let's start with that opening section beginning there in verse four. What does Jeremiah, it sounds like he's accusing the Lord here in, in verse seven. You deceived me. Yeah, it's almost like one of
1: those conversations that begins with someone saying, I'm so mad that I can't even talk to you. Okay. And then the other person says, no, go ahead, let's talk. And then, Okay, you're going to get it now. I mean, it's, it's the full force of, of Jeremiah's unmitigated feelings towards the Lord right now. And he begins by accusing the Lord of deceiving him. Hmm. Oh, Lord, you've deceived me and I was deceived. Um, well, what, what in the world is up with that? I, I suppose Jeremiah felt as if he was deceived, as if he he probably was deceived in his own mind, thinking that the call to be a prophet would be something of glory and not continual suffering and frustration. Um, I don't think the Lord sold him a bill of goods at all, but perhaps his own assumptions about what it would be like weren't in line with what the truth was going to be. Uh, He had had a lot of things cost him greatly, right? Mocked, derided, physically assaulted. And it seems like that's the thing that finally breaks him at this point um, to speak to God in this way. He uses this phrase, you are stronger than I and you have prevailed. You know, I think that's interesting. If we remember back to Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God at Peniel all all night long. Um, And Jacob in that text is said to prevail over God in the wrestling match because uh, he continues striving with God. And so Jeremiah says, you're stronger than I and you have prevailed. He's throwing in the towel, so to speak. He's saying, I'm tapping out. Um, There's nothing more I can do to, to wrestle with you, God. I've reached my end.
0: Yeah, I think the the I think those two help they go together and they help understand the whole thing so you've deceived me not in the sense that Jeremiah didn't know what he was getting himself into completely it, the Lord makes it very plain in the call documents in chapter one that Jeremiah is going to be doing a lot of plucking up and overthrowing and destroying and also that the people are not going to like that but it's it's like Jeremiah and, and I think this comes through later, particularly in verse nine. Jeremiah knows that maybe he, he didn't want to do that, but he' doesn't, he doesn't have a choice because God's stronger and, and God's going to sort of force his hand. And it is you know I mean it, it does sound impious, but I think it's we need to, we need to be able to embrace this kind of lament. God already knows what Jeremiah thinks mm-hmm. and and I think if we're honest, if I'm sitting there in the stocks. This is probably what I'm thinking too, and I know we don't know this for a fact, but I kind of like to picture Jeremiah even praying this maybe within the stocks. Hmm, there. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, again, you don't know that, and Jeremiah is notorious for not always, you know, being chronological. But I, I, almost, almost like Jonah, you know, prays from the belly of the fish. Right. Maybe jo- Jeremiah, excuse me, is praying this from the stocks, complaining to the Lord, lamenting to the Lord. Even that word "complaint" maybe has a too negative a, a connotation. Jeremiah is simply pouring out his heart before the Lord. And and so now he's going to tell God, look, here's, here's my beef with you. <laughs> you deceive me. You're stronger. You're not letting me. And I've become a laughing stock. Everyone's mocking me because of what I'm preaching. So keep going into this lament. Yeah, And I
1: love that phrase. I've become a laughing stock. I don't know if that pun or double meaning exists in Hebrew too, but in English it comes across, right? I've been a laughing stock, literally in the stocks with people laughing and deriding him. Um, <laughs> So continuing on from there, I think he's, he's lamenting and not just being God's prophet, but of course the content of what that, that message is. He's tired of preaching violence and destruction. He's tired of hellfire and brimstone. Um, he, would like to preach a little more hopeful message. Um, but it causes this derision to come, uh, from others towards him. Now, Like we said, um, verse nine is probably the memory verse out of chapter 20. I would say if someone was going to commit one to memory, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. He toys with the idea of silence. He says it would be an option, I guess, to be quiet, um, but he can't hold in the word of the Lord. Um, in the same way that if I told you to, to breathe in and hold your breath, um, it can't stay in forever. It burns in your chest and in your heart and has to, has to get out. So the word of the Lord is to Jeremiah that he doesn't, uh, have the option of holding it. in. now it, it reminds me of a, a phrase I heard someone say when I was younger, I don't remember who it was. And it may be a famous phrase from a famous preacher that other ones say, but this older pastor once said, don't preach unless you have to. Have you ever heard that? I have. What What do you take from it? Don't preach unless you have to. Means it's not a task that you go into for the purpose of hearing your own voice reverberate from the church walls, or across the radio waves, or across the radio waves. Right? It's something that you go into because the Lord has placed a a burden of of foretelling and forthtelling His Word uh, to those who need to hear it. That it's not a a job you could quit. You know, on Friday and go do something else on Monday and never look back. Um, it, it's a true vocation that the Lord gives and a calling and a necessity uh, to preach. Is and that that verse nine here really captures that from
0: Jeremiah. Yeah, I mean, I think in verse nine almost makes it sound like that Jeremiah tried perhaps to stop for a while, that he even tried not to speak the word of the Lord, and he, he simply couldn't. That the word of the Lord had captivated him that much, that it had taken hold of him that much. And, and maybe again, this is part of the, you know, verse seven that the Lord even just wouldn't let Jeremiah hold it in. You, you have to do this. And I think, and you know, I think Paul speaks the same way about preaching from necessity as well. And and certainly pastors still God granted that, that this would be true that if we tried to stop speaking the Lord's name and to preaching his truth, that the Lord would, would make it within us this fire that we simply can't hold in and right. much must proclaim. So from there, Pastor Hill, the lament continues in verse ten. Jeremiah describes again his his situation. People whispering and trying to get him from one way or another into verses uh, ten and eleven. Take us into. No, sorry, just verse 10. Verse 11 is where there's a bit of a shift.
1: Right. So in verse 10, um, essentially Jeremiah finds himself being denounced by all of his close friends. So, you know, uh, your friends stick by you as a function of, of how much they, they care for you or how deep the friendship is. Uh, I'm sure he lost a couple of them early on and a couple held on a little bit longer, but they're, they're all gone now. Um, and the idea is that they are watching for his fall. He's become someone that when you see him walking down the street, you don't just want to avoid him. You want to watch something bad happen to him because essentially people are conflating the messenger and the message, right? We've got the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Um, but you can understand why it is tempting for people to shoot the messenger. If you don't hear it anymore, you can begin to believe it's not true. So they are actually plotting to overcome him, to, to fall upon him and take revenge upon him, um, and it's, it's a great uh, trouble when Pashur would do something like that. But now his closest friends, it seems, are conspiring
0: the same. And we know from elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah that it is his own hometown, his own hometown of Anathoth, that is, they are also participating in this persecution of of Jeremiah. So, I mean, it, everybody is against Jeremiah, except one, except one. And so in verse 11, there is this transition and it's, it's rather abrupt. There's no real reason within the lament itself that in verse 10, Jeremiah's thinking about all of his former friends who are now persecuting him. And suddenly he's picturing the Lord now as a dread warrior in verse 11, which I think, and maybe we can come back to this later, is part of the, the purpose of lament is that simply by doing the lament, the Lord begins to draw you toward himself. The mm-hmm. fact that you're actually lamenting to him rather than complaining about him to your friends, draws you toward him. And I think that sort of just this abrupt, no real transition from 10 to 11, suddenly now Jeremiah saying, ah, but the Lord is with me, invites us to consider that doing the lament, actually lamenting is part of the, this sounds so new agey, but part of the process. Like this is what God wants us to do is to lament. And he uses that to draws to himself. So, and maybe we can, you can talk about it now. We can maybe as we reflect on it later as well, but in verse 11, there is this transition. Suddenly, Jeremiah sounds a lot more hopeful and he's picturing the Lord in a way that is not the, I don't know if, does your church have a picture of the Lord as a dread warrior in it? No, but that would be really yeah, great. Yeah, we should. Let's what's commission what's one. All right, let's do it. What What's Jeremiah? How, what's the turn that he makes?
1: Yeah. So I, I think you're right to say that Jeremiah has gotten it out at this point, or at least some of it out (laughs) this, this wave of, of lament has, has reached its ebb. Um, and having that catharsis, which we'll talk about more later, I guess he, he now turns in hope to the Lord and says, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. That's such a cool phrase. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's like the theological version of like Darth Vader in a good way. (laughs) It's just, it's got this ring to it. Um, the Lord is the dread warrior who is going to fight for him. Right. Jeremiah can't fight for himself. He doesn't have the ability to do so. Um, and and to me, this is like this image of like some spiritual special forces or something crazy. Right. You know, the, the, the beefiest you could imagine, um, strongest, most capable warrior, uh, is the Lord himself. And, um, that's, it reminds me of course, of a mighty fortress is our God verse two, you know, Uh, before us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. It's this idea of God as the victor overall that's fighting on our behalf. And because we're connected to him, uh, we receive the benefits of the battle that he wins.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is actually a pretty common image, particularly in the old Testament in Exodus 15, right after they've come through the red sea, the Moses sings that the Lord is a man of war is how it's even translated. And, and every time we hear, In in English, it's usually translated something like the Lord of hosts. You could translate that the Lord of armies. And this is the same word that we sing in the Sanctus, Lord God of Sabaoth, which is not Sabbath, but it is the Lord of hosts. So this is a common theme from the scriptures that the Lord fights for us. And Jeremiah finds hope in that at this point in verse 11. He knows that the Lord will fight for him, that his enemies will, in fact, be greatly shamed how does jeremiah continue in this again hopeful note into verse 12
1: well so he realizes that if the lord is this dread warrior as we've we've spoken of he can then entrust himself uh to that dread warrior of the lord who's who's fighting for him he can commit his cause to the lord and entrust that the lord will avenge him and will avenge him because jeremiah's cause is righteous now this is not to say he's you know earning god's favor by his own you know acts of righteousness but to say his cause is upright, that he is doing that which God has called him to do, and there's a peace and a um, a comfort that even in the midst of adversity exists when you know that the cause is just, um, and that's that's where he ultimately takes his comfort. He says, "Nevertheless, I'm doing what God said I ought to do, and the Lord fights for me."
0: Verse thirteen, at least, is the way that it's. Printed in the ESV, which we're reading from, seems set off, almost like a a hinge between the two sections. And this is, I think, the most hopeful of the verses that we have in our text today, maybe even among the more hopeful verses in all of Jeremiah. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers.
1: Yeah, where'd that come from, huh? Right. (laughs) It it does. It sounds almost a bit out of context. Um, I think that might illustrate to us that the church sings what is true, even when the world seems to be giving us evidence to the contrary, right? It's this, um, this idea of nevertheless, right? We have, we confess as the church, a nevertheless, Um, you may be in your darkest day, but nevertheless, the hope uh, of new life and salvation in the gospels true. What, whatever comes your way, there is always that thing that, you just have to confess with your mouth, even if
0: um, you may not 100% feel it at the moment in your heart. Hmm. Yeah, and, and certainly Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah does that. And, and it's a beautifully hopeful verse. And so I, while well, you were talking, I was pulling a, a book here. because so I was curious if this text ever shows up in the lectionary. And it does. It's on proper 7A. So if you're in the three-year series, year A, you hear Jeremiah during the season of Sundays after Pentecost. But guess where the reading stops? Verse stop at thir- It 12? stops at verse thirteen. It stops at verse thirteen. That's right. Oh. We, and that's where we'd like it to stop. I that think. is where we'd like it to stop because yeah. because this is this is what we would like to see. I think in our own lives is we've gotten our lament out. The Lord has brought us into hope, and then we say Amen. Absolutely, just like a sermon. That's right. But Jeremiah continues, and and to be fair. It's possible that some of this was put together later by the, you know, we know that Jeremiah compiled his preaching. And so it's, it's possible that this isn't one continuous lament, but it's put that way for us in the book. And so we're invited to consider it. Jeremiah now goes back to lamenting and, and laments in ways that, I mean, before he was accusing God of deceiving him, now he's mad at God that he was even born. So, let's go past what the lectionary gives us and take us into verses 14 to 18.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, before we before we comment on those, it, it kind of reminds me of a phenomenon in our house and maybe in yours too, right? Uh, we both have boys and they fight. I guess mine do, maybe yours do too. Ours do. They do? Okay, good. I don't feel so bad. Um, <laughs> they'll fight and you'll say, go apologize to your brother, right? And they'll go apologize to their brother. But sometimes they just got to get that one last thing in. Yeah. And and I think that's what's happening here. It's 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 Jeremiah having reached the the climax of, of confessing hope in the Lord and, oh yeah, but by the way, God, there was this one other thing I wanted to get out. Um, and it's no small thing, uh, cursed be the day on which I was born. Oh man, here we go again. Right. Yeah. Um, he's so bold as to regret the day that his mother bore him. He is so bold as to wish that his father who had been brought great joy by the news that he was to receive a son that that day would have never happened. Um, he is so, uh, deep in his, his sorrow that he wishes that the man who had brought the news to his father of his coming birth would have instead taken an action to kill him in the womb. Mm-hmm. And he says this in such a strange way that he believes that it would have caused the womb of his mother to be forever great if he had been killed in her womb, mm-hmm. as if she would have had a greater honor to have not bore him and that his current situation in life is dishonoring uh, his
0: mother, for being his mother. Um, that's some pretty deep stuff. Yeah. I mean, this isn't all that different from what Job says in his great trials as well, that that he wishes he were not born. For Jeremiah particularly, you know, thinking about the first part of his lament, this matter of cursing the day of his birth, does relate back to his call because the Lord said that he had set apart Jeremiah from the womb, from before he was born. And so now Jeremiah, I mean, it's like he's going back again to that that very opening scene of the book and, and the first part of this lament saying, I wish I was never born. That's how bad this is. What do we, well, what don't we do with this? And what do we do with this, Pastor Hill?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, first off, um, what we don't do with this is we don't use this as some kind of prescriptive text to establish the fact that in some cases it would be better if someone not be born. Um, This is Jeremiah speaking. God does not say, Jeremiah, it would have been better if he hadn't been born. Jeremiah is saying, I feel as if it would be better if I had not been born. So, um, of course, you know, God's gift of life is precious in the womb, this type of lament here is, is a hyperbole spoken from the depth of sadness that Jeremiah is speaking and is not meant to, to be anything beyond that. In the same way when we're in the depths of, of trouble or, or anger or, um, or sadness, we'll say things that the next day you'd say, yeah, I didn't really mean that in the way it came out. I suppose that is what Jeremiah might say in hindsight with a little bit of distance there.
0: Well, and and two, I mean, think about the way Jesus speaks in the Gospels when he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, and and he'll say things, you know, blessed be the wombs that never bore, and, and things like that, where Jesus is not saying that it's cursed to have children by no means, but in the context, he's saying something about this is how bad that day is going to be, that it would be better for you not to have children, Similarly for Jeremiah in this context, this is the way he feels. And it's it's quite real. It's quite raw. So that's what we don't do with it. We don't take it too far as some kind of prescriptive text. It does border on our pious sensibilities. It's hard for us to imagine ourselves saying that this is good, but it is the inspired word of God. I think it's the also hard, imagine not yourself saying it, but imagine someone you love saying it. How do you respond to that? That's where it begins to challenge us, I think, greatly. So what, again, and this gets to the larger question of just lament within the Christian life. What do we do with a text like this? How do we make use of lament faithfully as Christians? Well,
1: I think what we need to do is we need to draw a clear distinction between lament and despair. Um, lament is pouring out to God the depths of your troubles and your feelings, and that's appropriate and that's acceptable. Um, There's a line between that and despair. Despair is what says it's all over for me now. Uh, There's nothing I can do to make this better. There's nothing God could do to make this better. Uh, Despair leads ultimately uh, down the path of hopelessness. Uh, And I suppose in a way, faithlessness, uh, because, you know, what is our faith? It's the thing that gives us a hope that God can do something about our situation. So I want to hear these verses 14 through 18, remembering that in 13, Jeremiah did um, speak about the deliverance of the Lord and, and understand that Jeremiah somehow can hold both of these things in his heart at the same time the depth of his his trouble and sadness, but also the hope in the Lord. So that's the difference is it's a deep lament, but not a despair. And I think we need to make sure that people in our day are also keeping that line uh, there as well. Mm-hmm. And and it's an especially important thing for us to listen for as other people are speaking about their feelings and their their sadness, or even in the context of uh, our current circumstances, a lot of people are, are dealing with major depression or anxiety or things that didn't manifest themselves as widely a couple years ago as they are today. Um, if you know somebody in your family or or someone in your church that's expressing things like this, you need to have a keen ear as to whether they're lamenting or whether they're flirting with despair because the response to each of those two things is is a very
0: different one. Well, and I think, I mean, I think lament helps us. When we would be tempted to fall into despair, Mm -hmm. because what, what do you do with those feelings? You, you have to take them to the Lord. He already knows your feeling and he's the one that can, can deal with it. I I made this observation a a few episodes ago as, as I've been trying to grapple with this myself. There, Jeremiah was accused at many points in his preaching of, you know, nobody liked him. And one of the things that people would say is, you know, like, well, where is this word of the Lord, Jeremiah? You keep talking about destruction. It hasn't happened yet. And and the observation that I made that's helped me is that everybody can look out at the world and see that things don't always match up with what God says. An unbeliever can see that, and so can a faithful Christian. The difference is what you do with it. Mm-hmm. The unbeliever sees that the world doesn't match up with what God says and scoffs, mocks, doesn't believe. But the Christian sees that the world doesn't match up with what God says. And I I think that's where Jeremiah is coming from here. You know, Lord, I'm your prophet. What's going on? Why is this happening? I'm the quote, good guy here. And so what does he do? He doesn't fall into despair or mockery or scoffing. He laments. And I think to, to learn to encourage the proper lament without falling into despair is probably, I mean, not just speaking for myself, it's something that I don't always know how to do very well, but I think it's something that I probably need to recover. We got about three minutes, Pastor Hill, for closing thoughts. Any response to that?
1: Right. So we have to watch that line of between despair and lament in our own selves first, to the extent that we're able, but when you're in the throes of, of, of trouble and hardship, it's kind of hard to, to, to make sense of that yourself. And as a community of Christians, we need to watch for that line between despair and lament. Um, you know, just in closing, one of the things I want to mention is I don't know about your, your pastoral history, but I know about mine. And it's the case for many pastors that at some point in their ministry, they'll provide a service for someone who's died by suicide. Um, and along the way to that event is oftentimes this feeling of despair. Um, this is not to comment on anyone's situation in the past, but to say as a church, let's open our eyes to people who are finding themselves in a place of deep sorrow and care for them by, by being mindful of, of how deep despair can go. Um, and as pastors, as lay people, you know, perhaps when we hear someone burying their soul in this type of way, uh, we need to ask them, you know, the question of, hey, uh, is that how you really feel? Or is it just something you need to say to get off your chest? Um, you know, why don't you uh, why don't you stay with me a little while? Let's let's stay together today and and spend time with one another and and lift that person up. But I, I guess that's the practical reality I'd bring out of all of this is that Jeremiah speaks deep lament, but despair is such a thing that exists in the Bible as well, and it's something we ought to look out for one another and within the Christian community um,
0: as just a modern application mm-hmm. for us. Certainly to take to take those those loved ones in Christ to the Lord, to bear their burdens with them, to to lament with them, and ultimately to point them to the hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the app. Use the open mic feature. Send us a 60-second message up to that. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.